Pray with me. Lord, I do pray we would hearken to your voice this morning. Pray that through my words and especially from your word, you would conform us further to the image of your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So a couple of weeks ago, I undertook to do a small repair operation. The uh, insert of one of my dock cider shoes had come loose, and so I wanted to glue it back into place. And to do this, I used what we call shoe goo. Have any of you ever used shoe goo? It's great for shoe repair. And if you've used it, you know that after it ages for a while, it becomes thick and difficult uh, to manipulate. And so I took my shoes out and I took the insert out and I started squeezing beads of shoe goo from the nozzle of the tube. And this took a while. So I'm squeezing and squeezing and slowly getting out little pieces of this shoe goo and trying to put them on the insert of my shoe. Well, I finally completed that only to realize that the tube had indeed yielded the goo, only it had blown out the bottom of the tube. So to my horror, once I finished my little operation, I saw that shoe goo had gone all over my shoes. So I reached in and I frantically tried to start cleaning it up and I called out to Karen, emergency, emergency. And she ran into the room and saw my hands just filled with this gunk. So we undertook to try to clean it up. A three minute shoe repair became 90 minutes of meticulously trying to pick the goo out of my shoes, the shoelaces, and because I had been so careful in my planning, out of the woven fabric of the dining room table where I had put my shoes as I was performing this operation. It was a disaster. In fact, Karen called it a goo-tastrophe. I wasn't terribly amused by this in the moment, but the name stuck even if the insert didn't. And so the great catastrophe of 2023 was recorded in the annals of my many DIY misadventures. DIY, of course, standing for destroy it yourself. But it's good to laugh at ourselves when these kinds of things happen. But because I got so upset about it, typically, and because I am a melancholy, introspective personality, I thought afterwards about why. Why such anger over this? My reaction was so out of proportion to the situation. Now, in, in part, it's because I hate being incompetent. I hate appearing to be incompetent. Messing up a shoe repair is trivial but I carry that anxiety into everything I do. In my work at the Rivendell Institute, 
in my teaching, and yes, in my preaching. And as I try to negotiate that tension to gain some perspective and hand things over to the Lord, I once again confront that familiar, unanswerable question. What do I want anyway? What do we want, really? Not to baptize all of our desires, not by any means, but engaging such a question as we confront our own inner life is not foreign to a life of faith. Indeed, our most pressing desires lie at the center of our beliefs and our values and certainly affect whether or not we seek to live them out. It was the first question Jesus ever put to his disciples. In John 1, when John the Baptist points to Jesus and tells some of them, Behold the Lamb of God, and they follow after him, Jesus turns to them and asks, What do you seek? We know that question was operating at many levels simultaneously. It got at their motivation as well as the object of their quest. When the psalmist declares from our Psalm 119, I open my mouth and pant. I long for your commandments. We hear earnest passion. When we read in our parables from our gospel lesson of a treasure hidden in a field that the finder sells everything to possess, or of the merchant who does the same when he finds one pearl of great value, we see desire at the heart of a kingdom economy. Even with Solomon in our passage from 1 Kings, when the Lord tells him, ask what I should give you, he is evoking the same question. What do you want? Well, my very minor crisis of competence in the midst of the catastrophe and all manner of other far more significant failures, setbacks, disappointments, provoke me to recognize once more that one of the things I want most is to be thought well of, to be esteemed. The dark side of this we know all too well, a corrosive kind of narcissism that hurts others while eating out our own souls. But there's another side which is life-giving. Indeed, which gets at not only the core of our desires, but our deepest need. A need we have been created to have satisfied. One of the things I tell my children on a regular basis is, I'm so proud of you. It's more than words. I mean it. But the words are important to express. In the face of all that the world throws at them, which may damage their sense of worth, I want them to hear that tape of their father's voice playing in their heads. Some of us may have the opposite tape playing in our heads. A couple of years ago, I told a student that I was proud of her for the work she had done and for the character she had shown in doing it. To my surprise, she was surprised and told me that she had never had a professor or a teacher tell her that. 
I remember the story that one of my colleagues tells of saying goodbye to his parents in the Princeton Library. And as they were leaving, they turned back to him and told him, we're proud of you, son. He said, you could have heard a pin drop. And as he looked around the room, he saw some of his classmates. We long to hear these words, or ones like them, and to know what it is they affirm. I realize it repeats what we often profess, but it bears repeating every day. We need to know deep in our spirit that we are valued, that we are thought well of, that we are loved and counted worthy of love. In our passage from Romans 8, we find one of the loftiest declarations that Paul ever penned. As he reaches his crescendo, he writes, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This love that God has for us acquires cosmic proportions, as expansive as the universe itself in defeating all possible challenges to it. And yet we find in his affirmation what also hits close to the bone when it comes to our deepest desires and needs. He captures us in a phrase. If God is for us, who can be against us? More often than not, my answer to this rhetorical question is me. As I've shared from this pulpit before, I can sometimes feel that God loves me because he has. He doesn't really like me. Due task that these aside, I'm just too much of a selfish, evil-loving person for God to want to keep company with me. I think here of John Pittard's insightful exposition a few weeks ago of the person Paul conjures in Romans 7, the one who is tormented by a, per- a persistent failure to do good despite his desire to do so. Oh, wretched man that I am. Which can also be the experience of a believer. If we read Romans faithfully, however, meaning with faith-filled confidence, Paul's declaration of God's love for us marks the fitting climax of everything he has been arguing up to this point, which is directed to us personally. Beginning with creation, back in chapter 1, Paul has labored to explain why Christ came, why he died, and the impact of his death and his resurrection on us. As we saw in our passage last week, one of Paul's keynotes is freedom. So in verse 1 of chapter 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set set you free from the law of sin and of death. As he continues on in our passage, he explains how that new life consists of of more than a particular legitimacy in the eyes of God. Though this is vitally important and foundational as ones who are, he tells us, called, justified, 
and glorified. As children predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, we are brought into a relationship of intimacy with God through his spirit. Think of the closeness Jesus knew with the Father during his earthly existence. So intimate is his spirit with us that even when we don't know how to pray or can't find words because of our weakness, Paul says, he searches our hearts and becomes our advocate. He intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. The intimacy of knowing someone so profoundly speaks what we find between close friends or life partners or parents and children. In short, God finds himself. And although we may pick up an echo here from the penitent psalm, Psalm 51, search me, O God, and see if there be any hurtful way in me. The Spirit does not only search our heart for evil, but for good, for that which he has implanted in us and would see come to fullness. God has a will and a purpose for us. And in this bond, he also always works towards our good, towards the fulfillment of his purpose that we be conformed to the image of his son. He is making us little Christs. We cooperate with that ambition as our life mission, but not as a duty owned owed, but under the auspices of a love that cannot be thwarted, even by ourselves. We know this. And yet our confidence in God's regard for us flounders. So in this climactic declaration, hear this. I may presume to translate Paul's words as the Lord's message to us. There is nothing in all of your circumstances, in all of your trials, in all of heaven and earth and all the forces therein that will keep me from loving you. As the psalmist declares, the Lord takes pleasure in his people. God also has desires and emotions, and he doesn't really love us because he has to, being love. As other translations of this verse put it, it is because he delights in us. Paul says earlier in this passage that all things work together for good for those who love God. But he then ends his thoughts by emphasizing those whom God loves. This is the key point. And where he leaves us at the climax of his entire treatise on the gospel. And though it be one of the most familiar affirmations that we hear and make, as I said earlier, it is one that we need to rehearse every day. It is indeed good news. I conclude with this. Our former intern, Joe Rose, mentioned in one of his sermons his practice of praying each night before he goes to sleep. I love you, God. 
a good prayer. May I encourage you to add something. I love you, God. And you love me. Amen. Amen.